Frankenstein by Mary Shelley, the graphic novel version. Introduction of characters, Victor Frankenstein. Victor Frankenstein is the creator of the monster or creature, okay? So Victor Frankenstein is the person that creates the monster. The monster itself is called Frankenstein's monster or Frankenstein's creature um, and is otherwise nameless. We have Elizabeth Lavenza, which is Victor's adopted sister. Very important note for later. We have Robert Walton, who is an adventurer, the ship's master, the ship's lieutenant, and they are all on the same ship with Robert Walton, who is the adventurer. We then have Victor's parents, Alphonse Frankenstein, Caroline Frankenstein, and then his brothers, Ernest and William. We then have Victor's best friend ever, BFF, Henry Clerval. And finally, rounding out the Frankenstein household is Justine Mortz, which is one of the servants in their household. Then, when we go to the university, we have Monsieur Grimp, who is a professor of natural philosophy. And then we have Monsieur Waldman, which is a professor of chemistry there. Later on in the book, we're going to be introduced to a lawyer, and his name is just lawyer. We have an old woman. And then we have Monsieur de Lacy. He is a poor blind man that lives in a cottage with his daughter Agatha de Lacy and his son Felix de Lacy. We later on have a Turkish merchant and his daughter Safi. And then much later on and not as important, we have Mr. Kerwin, who is a magistrate. We have some fishermen and a Genevan judge. So that rounds out our characters that are going to be in play here. So, without further ado, here is our prologue. Mary Shelley's literary masterpiece, Frankenstein, was unleashed upon the world in 1818. It was written before the days of steam travel, when the world seemed a much larger place than it does today. Far-off places were out of the reach of all but the bravest adventurers, and those in unknown places, it was possible that things could exist, even things created by human beings, that would terrify anyone who saw them. Science was progressing at an astounding pace. It seemed that anything and everything was possible, as the human race found new and more powerful ways to create, and also to destroy. At the same time, medical science was finding new ways to heal the sick, and to revive the dying. And it started to raise questions about the nature of life itself. If the dying can be revived, then could the dead also be brought back to life? How about a dead person that had been assembled from the parts of other dead people? Could that be given life too? Where would it all end? Would all this go too far? And if so, what would the consequences be? Indeed, in this early world of advancing medical science, anything and everything seemed possible. And now we have letters from Robert Walton. He is the adventurer on the ship going to the Arctic. Letter 1, December 11th. My dear sister, I am already far north of London. I feel a cold northern breeze play upon my cheeks, which braces my nerves and fills me with delight. This breeze, which has traveled from the regions towards which I am advancing, gives me a foretaste of those icy climes. I try in vain to be persuaded that the pole is the seat of the frost and desolation. There, Margaret, the sun is forever visible. There, we may be wafted to land surpassing in wonders and in beauty every region hitherto discovered on the habitable globe. This expedition has been the favorite dream of my early years. I have read with ardor the accounts of the various voyages made in the prospect of arriving at the North Pacific Ocean. Do I not deserve to accomplish some great purpose? My life might have been passed in ease and luxury, but I preferred glory to every enticement wealth placed in my path. 
I am about to proceed on a long and difficult voyage, the emergencies of which will demand all of my fortitude. Letter 2, March 28th. How slowly the time passes here. Encompassed as I am by frost and snow, I have no friend, Margaret. When I am glowing with the enthusiasm of success, there will be none to participate in my joy. If I am assailed by the disappointment, no one will to sustain me in dejection. I cannot describe to you my sensations on the near prospect of my undertaking. Letter 3, July 7th. We have already reached a very high latitude. Be assured that I will not rashly encounter danger. Letter 4, August 5th. Last Monday, ice closed in on the ship on all sides. Our situation was somewhat dangerous as we were compassed round by a very thick fog. We accordingly lay to, hoping that some change would take place in the atmosphere and the weather. About two o'clock, the mist cleared away and we beheld vast and irregular plains of ice, which seemed to have no end. Some of my comrades groaned and my own mind began to grow watchful and with anxious thoughts. When a strange sight suddenly attracted our attention and diverted our solitude from our own situations. We perceived, at the distance of a half a mile, a being which had the shape of a man, but apparently of gigantic stature. Shut in, however, by ice, it was impossible for us to follow his track. In the morning, I found all the sailors busy on one side of the vessel, apparently talking to someone in the sea. It was, in fact, a sledge, which had drifted towards us in the night on a large fragment of ice. There was a human being whom the sailors were persuading to enter the vessel. He was not, as the other travelers seemed to be, a savage, but a European. Here's our captain, and he will not allow you to perish on the open sea. Before I come aboard, will you have the kindness to inform me whither you are bound? We are on a voyage of discovery towards the northern pole. Upon hearing this, he appeared satisfied and consented to come on board. His limbs were nearly frozen, and his body dreadfully emaciated by fatigue and suffering. I never saw a man in so wretched a condition. We restored him to animation, and by slow degrees he recovered. Two days passed before he was able to speak. Why did you come so far upon the ice in so strange a vehicle? To seek the one who fled from me. I fancy we have seen him. We saw some dogs drawing a sledge with a man in it across the ice. The demon! Do you think breaking upon the ice had destroyed the other sledge? Well, the ice did not break until near midnight. He might have arrived at a place of safety before that time. I have doubtless excited your curiosity. You are too considerate to make inquiries. And yet you rescued me. You have restored me to life. A new spirit of life animated the stranger. He must have been a noble creature in his better days. August 13th. My affection for my guest increases every day. He excites at once my admiration and my pity to an astonishing degree. How can I see so noble a man destroyed by misery without feeling the most pungent grief? He is now much recovered from his illness. August 19th. Yesterday the stranger said to me, You may easily perceive, Captain Walton, that I have suffered great misfortunes. You seek for knowledge as I once did, and I hope that may not be a serpent to sting you, as mine has been. Yet, you may deduce an apt moral from my tale. Prepare to hear of occurrences which are usually deemed marvelous. My fate is nearly fulfilled. Nothing can alter my destiny. Listen to my history, and you will perceive how irrevocably it is determined. All right, so just to recap, Captain Walton is sending all these letters to his sister. He is on his way to visit the North Pole to start an expedition and explore things for glory. While they're there, they end up getting trapped in ice and fog. When the fog goes away, they see that there's this huge person-like figure out on the distance on a sled, and then that disappears. The next morning, they find a man on a different sled, and they bring this man aboard. And once they get this man back to help, 
Captain Walton talks to the man and, you know, like, what's your story? Why are you here? And so the man begins to tell Captain Walton how he came to be in the Arctic. All right. So now with volume one, chapter one, that we're about to begin, this is where Captain Walton is just going to be listening and Victor Frankenstein, the stranger, is going to be telling him how he started from the bottom and now we're here. Volume 1, Chapter 1 I, Victor Frankenstein, am by birth a Genevese, and my family is one of the most distinguished of that republic. My father filled several public situations with honor and reputation. There was a considerable difference between the ages of my parents, but this circumstance seemed to unite them only closer in bonds of devoted affection. After their marriage, my parents sought the pleasant climate of Italy. From Italy, they visited Germany and Naples. I was born at Naples, and as an infant accompanied them on their rambles. I remained for several years their only child. I was their only plaything and their idol, and something better. Their child, the innocent and helpless creature bestowed on them by heaven. When I was about five years old, my mother found a peasant and his wife with five hungry babes. Among these, there was one which attracted my mother far above all the rest. She was an orphan daughter of a nobleman, and with my father's permission, my mother prevailed on her rustic guardians to yield their charge to her. Elizabeth Lavenza became the, in the inmate of my parents' house, my more than sister, the beautiful and adored companion of all my occupations and my pleasures. So this is Victor giving some background about how his family used to move around a lot and how they ended up getting Elizabeth Lavenza. Basically, they found some peasants, said, hey, I like that kid, can I have it? And they're rich, so they got the kid. And that's how Elizabeth came to be with them. All right, volume one, chapter two. We were brought up together. There was not quite a year difference in our ages. On the birth of a second son, my parents gave up entirely their wandering life and fixed themselves in their native country, Geneva. We possessed a house in Geneva there. I united myself in the bonds of the closest friendship to Henry Clerval. He was deeply read in books of chivalry and romance. He began to write many a tale. The busy stage of life, the virtues of heroes, and the actions of men were his theme. Elizabeth was the living spirit of love to soften and attract. Clerval might not have been so full of kindness and tenderness had she not unfolded to him the real loveliness of beneficence. Natural philosophy is the genius that has regulated my fate. I procured the whole works of Agrippa, Periclesius, and Albert Smegnus. I read and studied their wild fancies of these writers with delight. Here were men who had penetrated the secrets of nature. I became their disciple. Wealth was an inferior object, but what glory would attend the discovery if I could banish disease from the human frame and to render man invulnerable to any but a violent death? When I was 15, we witnessed the most violent and terrible thunderstorm. It advanced from behind the mountains of Jura. The thunder burst at once with frightful loudness from various quarters of the heavens. I beheld a stream of fire issue from an old and beautiful oak. And as soon as the dazzling light vanished, the oak had disappeared and nothing remained but a blasted stump. The next morning we found the tree, shattered in a singular manner. It was not splintered by the shock, but entirely reduced to thin ribbons of wood. Before this, I was not unacquainted with the more obvious laws of electricity. I at once gave up my former occupations. I betook myself to the mathematics and the branches of study appertaining to that science. But it was ineffectual destiny, was too potent and her immutable laws had decreed my utter and terrible destruction. Okay, so in this chapter, Victor is talking about how he went down the path he did, why he chose what he did. He was studying these great philosophers, 
and he had wanted to study how he could save people um, and stop disease, things like that, a noble cause. He wanted glory, not wealth. And then one night during a really bad thunderstorm, there was a lightning strike and it hit a tree. And that started with him a new curiosity. And that is now where he's changing from studying these philosophers to now studying mathematics and science. Volume one, chapter three. When I was 17, my parents resolved that I should become a student at the University of Ingolstadt. Then misfortune occurred. Elizabeth caught the scarlet fever. My mother attended her sickbed. Elizabeth was saved, but my mother was sickened. My children, my firmest hopes of the future happiness, were placed on the prospect of your union. Elizabeth, my love, you must supply my place to my younger children. Alas, I regret that I am taken from you. I will endeavor to resign myself cheerfully to death, and I will indulge a hope of meeting you in another world. She died calmly, and her countenance expressed affection even in death. My mother was dead, but we still had duties which we ought to perform. Elizabeth veiled her grief and strove to act as the comforter to us all. The day of my departure for Ingolstadt at length arrived. Clerval had endeavored to persuade his father to permit him to join me, but in vain. Right often, Victor, I led my brothers, Elizabeth and Clerval, but I ardently desired the acquisition of knowledge. My journey to Ingolstadt was long and fatiguing. At length, the high white steeple of the town met my eyes. The next morning, I delivered my letters of introduction. Chance or rather the Angel of Destruction, led me first to Monsieur Kremp, Professor of Natural Philosophy. He was an uncouth man, but deeply imbued in the secrets of his science. Have you really spent your time studying such nonsense? Well, yes. Every minute, every instant that you have wasted on those books is utterly and entirely lost. I little expected in this enlightened and scientific age to find a disciple of Magnus and Perilous Clesius. My dear sir, you must begin your studies entirely anew. I went into the lecturing room of Monsieur Waldman. This professor was very unlike his colleague. The ancient teachers of this science promise possibilities and perform nothing. The modern masters promise very little. They know that the elixir of life is a chimera. But these philosophers penetrate into the recesses of nature and have discovered how the blood circulates and the nature of the air we breathe. They have acquired new and almost unlimited powers. They can command the thunders of heaven, mimic the earthquake, and even mock the invisible world with its own shadows. Soon, my mind was filled with one thought, one conception, one purpose. I will pioneer a new way, explore unknown powers, and unfold to the world the deepest mysteries of creation. Okay, so in this last chapter, Victor is now leaving his home in Geneva, and he is going to the University of Ingolstadt. His friend Henry wanted to come with him, but his dad was like, nah, bro, you stay in here. Okay, so Victor is now going to the university by himself, and here he meets two professors. One is a professor of philosophy, one is a professor of chemistry, and here he listens to both of them, and this is when he decides that it's not enough to just want to cure disease. Here, he wants to explore creation itself, and that is the path that he's going down. And that is where we're going to end today, and we will pick back up tomorrow.